Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Christopher Preble. I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies at the Cato Institute. Thank you all for attending, uh, and thanks to our fine conference staff at Cato, uh, who do so much to make these events such a great success. I also want to uh, extend special thanks to the staff at the Mount Vernon Place United Methodist Church, who, uh, for their hospitality as we complete some major renovations and expansion of the Cato building, uh, I'm pleased to report that for those of you who have attended events at the Hayek Auditorium, the, the new Hayek Auditorium will be bigger and better than ever uh, when it's completed next spring. Uh, in the meantime, we're very fortunate to have this facility to use. Uh, thanks also and welcome to those of you attending, obviously, but also those of you watching uh, via C-SPAN or on the internet at www.cato.org. At the heart of recent national security controversies, including 9-11 and the war in Iraq, lies the troubled relationship between intelligence and policy. And there are two timely new books that shine a spotlight on the problem, and we are fortunate to have the authors here with us today. Um, we're doubly fortunate to have a very distinguished guest to comment, and I'll introduce them each as they speak. Our first speaker today is Paul Piller. He's the Director of Graduate Studies uh, at the Center for Peace and Security Studies at Georgetown University, and the author most recently of Intelligence and U.S. Foreign Policy, published by Columbia University Press this year. Uh, Paul retired in 2005 from a 28-year career in the U.S. intelligence community in which his last position was National Intelligence Officer for the Near East and South Asia. Uh, earlier, he served in a variety of analytical and managerial positions, including as Chief of Analytic Units at the CIA, covering portions of the Near East, the Persian Gulf, and South Asia. Paul also served in the National Intelligence Council as one of the original members of its analytic group, and he also headed the assessments and intermate assessments and information group of the DCI Counterterrorist Center and from 1997 to 1999 was deputy chief of the center. Professor Pilar is a retired officer in the U.S. Army Reserve, served on active duty in 1971 through 1973, including a tour of duty in Vietnam, and he earned his Ph.D. from Princeton and also holds degrees from Oxford and Dartmouth. Please uh, join me in welcoming Paul Pillar. Thank Thank you very much, uh, Chris. I want to thank you personally and uh, Cato collectively for the uh, invitation to, to do this. And it's also a great pleasure to share a platform with uh, Josh and Mark both. Uh, the book that I wrote um, is about intelligence and policy and how it really works, which is not the same as how it works in theory uh, or how the perceived or common wisdom uh, would hold that it works. It's not a memoir, although I would acknowledge it has a lot of first person for an academic press book and uh, is based on a lot of personal experience. It's based, to begin with, on the idea that of all the things that go into sound foreign and security policy of this country, surely accurate images being held of whatever situation overseas our decision makers are dealing with is one of the more important ingredients. And that ingredient has seemingly gotten a lot of attention through the years, but in a very narrow way. Uh, that way is to talk about intelligence, whether it succeeds or fails, and if it fails, to so-called reform intelligence. And that's a very narrow conception for a number of reasons I'm going to get to in just a moment. It's the foundation for 
a national myth. All nations have myths. We've had other ones here in the United States. And the myth in this case is that when things go awry overseas or foreign threats hitting us here, that's because we simply did not understand the situation or the threat well enough. Our decision makers were not properly informed. And if we fix the problem, which is intelligence, then in the future we won't have that problem again of bad surprises and policymakers not being well informed. The myth serves mainly the purpose of reassurance. It's nice to think that when bad things happen, woebegone wars, terrorist attacks, you name it, that we can avoid a repetition if we find the right fix or reform. The myth's based on, at least partly on truth. We, we do have real intelligence failures, that's for sure. But in several ways, it diverges from reality. One is the impact that intelligence really has on policy. Intelligence does a very important role in providing input, mainly at the tactical and operational level, every day, every week, on a host of things, from keeping track of the Chinese military to running down terrorists. But on the really big decisions, the things that form our opinions about how our government apparatus has performed, either well or poorly. When I say big decisions, I mean major departures, like going to war, or major grand strategic redirections of American policy. You can look back over, and what I do in this book is look back over the last, uh, basically the Cold War period, since World War II, and the influence of intelligence on those decisions has been virtually nil. And I look at a number of things, the Vietnam War decisions in the 1960s, President Reagan's redirections in the 80s, and so on. I'd be happy to talk about that later if you want to ask questions. And then you've got the Iraq War decision, 2003, which is one of the two big uh, opinion uh, shapers about intelligence in recent years, the other, of course, being the 9-11 uh, uh, terrorist attack. And however much intelligence was used to sell the policy publicly of launching a war against Iraq, it had almost no role in making the decision. And I've got two or three chapters that basically are devoted uh, to reviewing what happened there. There was no policy process at all. There was no, no meeting in the sit room, no options paper, nothing like that where the issue of whether this war was a good idea was ever in play. So there was no opportunity not only for the intelligence bureaucracy, but for the professional military, the Foreign Service, or anyone else in the bureaucracy to have an input to that decision. Now, of course, we heard an awful lot about the, the weapons of mass destruction that weren't. Uh, but as Paul Wolfowitz uh, describes it in a rare, candid moment, that was basically an issue that people could agree on as a sales device uh, for persuading the public that the war was a good idea. The infamous estimate that we all heard so much about from the fall of 2002 was never even asked for by the administration. It was asked for by Democrats in Congress. The president, the national security advisor, never even read it. It included judgments like, um, if indeed Saddam had these feared weapons, he probably would not use them against the United States or give them to terrorists, except in one situation, that is, if we try to launch a war against his country and overthrow his regime. Hardly a selling point for going to war. And if you look at the other issues about terrorist ties and about what the consequences of a war would be after uh, Saddam was overthrown, 
the overall thrust of all of that, if you wanted to draw a conclusion from the intelligence community judgments, was not to launch the war rather than to launch it. Now, of course, in Congress and the larger public, there was a resonance with regard to this issue of feared weapons, but uh, there wasn't an, any more attention to what the intelligence community was really saying there than there was with the administration. Um, according to reporting from uh, Dana Priest, who in turn was sourcing this to the staffers who kept custody of the documents, there were only six U.S. senators and, quote, a handful, unquote, of representatives who ever bothered to look at that snake-bitten estimate from 2002. Um, intelligence has become a kind of spectator sport in this country. We, we, uh, we look at successes and failures not because of any real effect that they have on policy, but because they happen to involve things that are easy to score as successes or failures. So it's discrete things like election results, re uh, revolutions, nuclear tests, uh, terrorist attacks, that sort of thing. Even though that you add all that up and it's only a fraction of what the intelligence community's responsibilities um, have to do with. And some of the most notorious instances of what are true intelligence failures, the 1973 Middle East War, the Iranian Revolution, and I've got discussions of those things in the book as well, had virtually no effect, one way or another, uh, on uh, American policy and whether it succeeded or failed. Now, there's another problem with the mythology, and that is it doesn't take account of the effect of policy on intelligence. And I'm not going to take any time to say anything about that. We're talking about politicization, which is the focus of Josh's book, and he'll be talking about that more uh, in a moment. So I'm just going to skip to a third basic problem with the mythology, and that is it assumes that with the right fixes to intelligence, there's a nirvana out there where we won't have any more failures, where if, if the bureaucracy just worked the right way, we would no longer suffer any more bad surprises, and that really is a mistaken part of the myth. Uh, consider the fact that intelligence failure and reform has been a very old issue. It certainly goes back in this country at least to uh, Pearl Harbor. And we've had a whole succession, I mean, uh, about a score of them, of commissions, committees, inquiries in both the legislative and executive branches, as well as the huge corpus of commentary on the outside. And that raises the question, if intelligence has been perceived for so long as broken and in need of being fixed, then why haven't we, after some six decades or more, seven decades, ever fixed it? Well, there are some popular explanations to that. Either we just haven't hit on the right idea, or you know the political stars just haven't been aligned right to get reform through, and there's some truth to that one. Or um, things have changed, the world changes, so we have to continually adapt to things, and even if we got things right in the past, we have to change the apparatus to get it right in the future. Now, you know, there are some kernels of truth to each of those, but they don't really explain why the issue has been around for such a long time. The very fact that it has been in play for so long, I think, kind of cuts the rug out from under the idea that we just haven't come up with the right idea yet. And as for the world changing and having to adapt to new circumstances and so on, that issue itself has been around for a long time. All the rhetoric that you've heard over the last a decade or two about getting beyond the Cold War. We were hearing that in the middle of the Cold War. Um, it's, a, it's a popular line of argument because it makes whoever 
pre presents the argument, sound current, sound up to date, and so on. There are really three other explanations which are much less comforting, much less popular for why the issue has been around for so long. One is intelligence failures are inevitable for two basic reasons. Other people keep secrets. And number two, most of the things that are ingredients to what we consider intelligence failures, revolutions not predicted and so on, are the result of processes which are simply too complex to model. And social scientists have a hard enough time postdicting these things, let alone anyone predicting them. And a second basic reason is the performance of intelligence is not as bad as we commonly perceive it because we've got a built-in bias in terms of badness versus goodness. Failures make news, successes don't. Failures make for commissions and inquiries, successes don't. And we're always burdened by that huge thing called hindsight, uh, which looks at things with a particular gloss as to what could have been avoided or not, and that's far different from dealing with the situation in real time. And the third reason the issue has been around for so long is the one I already alluded to. It's a source of comfort. The idea that if we could just get the next fix right, even though we haven't done so these last you know, 60 or 70 years, then finally we're going to be safe and we can stop wringing our hands about intelligence failure. These factors were all in full evidence with regard to the other of the major, two major shapers of recent opinion about intelligence, the 9-11 terrorist attack. One of the biggest traumas that Americans have ever suffered in their history, so all these factors about needing comforting explanations uh, were there in spades. The principal vehicle for achieving a kind of national catharsis was the 9-11 Commission. And the Commission, from the standpoint of filling that function and achieving an incredible amount of deference uh, and unquestioning acceptance of what it said, above and beyond what just about any other Blue Ribbon Commission has achieved, um, it played its hand brilliantly. Uh, its chairman, uh, Governor Keene, had the strategy of unveiling its proposal for reform right in the middle of the 2004 election campaign. And the idea was, as Keene and uh, Lee Hamilton describe it in their book, to get the two political parties in a bidding war, as they put it, to see who could endorse the recommendations more enthusiastically. And that's exactly what happened. And they, they unveiled their proposal for a reorganization of the intelligence community. Uh, Governor, or Senator Kerry, who was the Democratic candidate, uh, I think after only about a day went by, said, adopt all their recommendations. And his opponent, President Bush, of course, had to follow suit. Unusually, even uniquely so for a commission of inquiry, the commission invested its prestige in adoption of this one central proposal. They talked about other things, of course, but the rearrangement of the boxes on the intelligence, committee, uh, commission, uh, intelligence community's organization chart was the centerpiece of what they were talking about. Almost everything written and said on this topic since then has taken the 9-11 Commission's output as holy writ. John Updike wrote in the New Yorker, he said, uh, the English language uh, had only one masterpiece written by a committee, the King James Bible, until we got the 9-11 Commission report. Um, the CIA Inspector General had a, had a previous report about how the agency did uh, its work on counterterrorism, came out internally, it was one of their regular reviews, just a month before 9-11. It was a very favorable report. 
then three years later, after the 9-11 Commission did its work, it had to respond to another congressional request, produced a report that was almost 180 degrees reversal from its initial one, falling in line with the Commission's uh, uh, account. The two big features of the Commission's plan were the creation of a Director of National Intelligence, splitting up the old job of Director of Central Intelligence, and the creation of the National Counterterrorism Center. And there's a lot in the later chapters of the book that, that assess you know, what, where that has left us. Let me just summarize it uh, briefly this way. With regard to the creation of the DNI, it did not centralize work in the intelligence community as it was billed as. Instead, it basically created one more agency, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, to sit precariously on top of the rest of the community and all the other agencies that are still there. And as for NCTC, NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center, and by the way, I think they do very good work there. I've admired immensely their leadership and the people who work there. But they are plagued, as, as are the uh, existing components that still are around at places like the FBI and the CIA, by the fact that NCTC was added to all those existing components rather than replacing them. So we've got big questions about where the lines of responsibility are drawn. And I've asked people at NCTC and at places like the Counterterror Center that still exists out at CIA, I said, you know, where, where does your responsibility end and the other centers begin? And I usually get a shrug of shoulders as the answer. If we can get away from the mythology and return to the more fundamental matter of how policy could be better informed, I propose some other ideas which go beyond intelligence. And the main one is take a look at that huge political layer that we have here in this country, very unusual among advanced democracies. We have about 3,000 political appointments, jobs that turn over with each new administration. Our European colleagues don't have anything like that arrangement. And it's in that political stratum where most of the images of situations overseas, for those who work in the foreign and security policy area, emerge that do have an influence on policy, not so much from the permanent bureaucracy. So if we want to look at um, how to improve those images, that's really what we have to look at. And my main proposal, which is not an original one, is drastically slash the political layer. Finally, um, no matter what measures are adopted, whether it's the kind of idea I just suggested or proposals like that came out of the 9-11 Commission or any of those others that we've heard over these last six or seven decades, no matter how much we try to fix things, there will always be a large amount of inevitable uncertainty that the policymakers are facing. And so my final chapter in this book is devoted to proposing some, some principles to follow in how to tailor policy toward uncertainty. And I'll just mention what the first one is, for example. Uh, expect surprise. Expect tactical surprise. Expecting it means preparing for it. It means not putting the whole Pacific fleet at Pearl Harbor, which is basically putting all your eggs in one basket, which was a mistake not because we should have been able to know that the Japanese attack would be there, but because we don't usually know those tactical details. And there are some other things that I lay out in that chapter as well. But I expect pessimistically that the mythology of intelligence, which has been so strong for so many years, will persist and um, we will still fall short of successfully adapting our policy to the uncertainty that we're always going to have. Thank you very much. <clears throat>
Thank you, Paul. Uh, let me now introduce Joshua Rovner, Associate Professor of Strategy and Policy at the U.S. Naval War College and author of Fixing the Facts, National Security and the Politics of Intelligence, published earlier this year by Cornell University Press. It's actually the second time that we've hosted Josh uh, at a Cato event this year. He was here in June to discuss his Cato foreign policy briefing, Dominoes on the Durand Line, Overcoming Strategic Myths in Afghanistan and Pakistan, which he co-authored with Austin Long. I do believe that we have copies of that as, uh, as well available. In addition, Josh has published a number of articles on intelligence reform, politics and strategy, nuclear proliferation and deterrence in a range of publications, and he is the reviews editor for the Journal of Strategic Studies. Rovner is also an adjunct professor at the School of International and Public Affairs at Columbia University, and he has previously taught at Williams, Holy Cross, and Clark. Josh holds a PhD in political science from MIT, an MA from Boston College, and a BA from UC San Diego. Josh Rovner. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Chris. And once again, thank you for Takedo for hosting uh, this event. Um, before I speak, I should say these are just my views. They don't represent the Naval War College, the Navy, or the Department of Defense. Um, intelligence has been central to the major national security controversies in the last decade. Actually, I should be more specific. Uh, intelligence policy relations have been central to the major national security controversies in the last decade. As Paul mentioned, uh, after 9-11, critics of the CIA and the intelligence community more broadly blamed it for failing to alert policymakers about the looming danger of al-Qaeda. Defenders of the intelligence community said, wait a minute, yes, you did give warning, but policymakers ignored those warnings. After the war in Iraq, critics of the intelligence community blamed it for wildly missing the estimate of Iraqi weapons of mass destruction. Defenders of the intelligence community said, actually, their estimates were pretty good, but they were bullied by policymakers. These are just two examples, and there are others, of, of major episodes in American foreign policy in which the peculiar relationship between intelligence and the policy world have been front and center. Um, surprisingly, though, it, it, as important as this issue is, there's been really very little scholarship on it and, and very little theory of, of what intelligence policy relations are, what they're supposed to, to look like. Um, Paul mentioned that, that he wrote a book about how intelligence actually works, not how it works in theory. I wrote a book which has a little bit of both, and, and I beg your forgiveness, but I'm going to talk a little bit about theory because I think theory matters. If you don't understand so, uh, about how something is supposed to work, at least in the ideal, then you can't measure failures. You can't measure deviations from how it should operate, and that's why I think theory does matter. So I'll do a little bit of that today. And then I will return to the Iraq case and discuss that in a little more detail. Okay, how do you think about this problem? Um, most people who write on intelligence uh, and intelligence policy relations start by looking at how the intelligence community does business. For understandable reasons, they focus on the process of writing estimates, the process of delivering them, and so forth. I, I approach the problem from another direction. Instead of focusing on intelligence, I look at, at, at policymakers first. And I ask a simple question. How do they respond to new estimates? When a policymaker gets a new estimate on his desk, what does he do with it? I think his, the, the answer is critical. Because how policymakers respond to intelligence really determines the quality of this interaction at any given time. 
there's three basic options for a policymaker. Option one, you can accept the estimate. Accepting it in good faith, letting it inform your decision-making process. Accepting intelligence does not mean making policy in lockstep with intelligence conclusions, but it does mean accepting it, again, in good faith and, and, and letting it uh, affect how you think about key problems. That's the first option. The second option is to ignore intelligence, right? to not let it inform your judgment, uh, or to cherry pick for certain pieces of intelligence you like and ignore the stuff that you don't like. Right? This happens all the time. Right? And this happens for, for very simple reasons. Policymakers have their own views of the world. Policymakers have lots of different sources of information and insight. Policymakers might decide to trust their own instinct and their own advisors rather than taking intelligence seriously. Or policymakers makers might just look at intelligence estimates and, and decide that these are pretty flimsy products. This is shoddy work. This is not helpful. I'm not going to pay attention. There are lots of reasons why policymakers would ignore it. I should also mention that policymakers are under no legal or procedural obligation to ever pay any attention to intelligence at all. Right? And yet sometimes they do, which leads me to the third um, major response. They can politicize intelligence. Politicization means the manipulation of intelligence to reflect policy preferences. In cases of politicization, policymakers do not simply accept intelligence and let it inform their discussions, nor do they reject it out of hand. Rather, they try to push back to pressure the intelligence community, either directly or indirectly, to arrive at predetermined conclusions. This is a huge problem. In fact, I think that politicization is the most important problem of intelligence policy relations because it has gigantic effects on the quality of threat assessment. It has three effects. In the short term, politicization leads to estimates that tend to be uh, conveyed with an unrealistic <coughs> sense of certainty. Intelligence estimates that have been politicized make it feel as if the entire intelligence community is in total agreement over what is really an ambiguous and murky issue. And they're also presented with, with an exaggerated sense of how good the underlying information is and how strong uh, conclusions really are. In the medium term, politicized intelligence inhibits reassessment. So an, assess uh, an, an estimate is written, it's politicized, and then it's published. And then new information comes in, which might cause us to reassess that initial conclusion. But if it's been politicized, intelligence agencies are very unlikely to go back and reassess their findings, because to do so would constitute a real admission of failure, and nobody wants to admit failure. Finally, in the long term, episodes of politicization can poison intelligence policy relations for months and for years. Major cases of politicization going back 40 years that, that, that I cover in, in the book have, have these effects that ripple for years and years and years afterwards, reinforcing negative stereotypes on both sides of the divide. Intelligence officials increasingly view policymakers as meddling bullies. Policymakers increasingly view intelligence officials as obstacles to the implementation of their plans. Right. So, Politicization is a big deal. Um, why does it happen? Um, the, to the extent I, I mentioned earlier, there's no 
strong theoretical body of research on this question. To the extent that there is a conventional wisdom, it has to do with this idea of proximity. The notion that politicization happens when, excuse me, when intelligence agencies are close to the policy world. Right? And the idea is, if they are too close to policy, then policy biases will inevitably seep into their conclusions. It's not clear exactly how this happens, but through some kind of osmosis, intelligence findings will start to reflect policy views. Again, I, I surveyed uh, decades of history, and I can find very little evidence to support this idea, despite the fact that it's commonsensical uh, and that it reflects something like dogma in, in the intelligence community. Proximity just doesn't seem to matter that much. Instead, politicization is, is all about domestic politics. Changing domestic political conditions affect the likelihood that this will occur. And two things need to happen. First, policymakers have to make strong public commitments to a new policy. Right? Second, they have to meet substantial domestic opposition to that policy. Under those conditions, a strong new policy commitment to a controversial idea, politicization of intelligence is very likely. Right? And the reason is that intelligence is a very powerful public relations tool. If you are a policymaker saying something controversial and trying to overcome serious domestic opposition to your plans, it helps a great deal to enlist the intelligence community to help you make the case. Intelligence, after all, controls secrets, and there's a great aura attached to secrecy. Policymakers who gain the imprimatur of the intelligence community can say to the public or Congress or whomever, trust us, give us the benefit of the doubt, we have access to secret but best possible information. And it gets better. Because if you're a policymaker enlisting intelligence for this purpose, you can selectively release certain pieces of intelligence while keeping all of the rest classified. In other words, you can say, I can show you a little bit, but the rest, the really juicy stuff, has to remain behind closed doors. This is a very powerful way to overcome domestic opposition. Okay, so much for theory. Um, what happened in Iraq? There's two broad theories about what happened. The first theory is that uh, intelligence screwed up. This was uh, the, the, the finding of a couple of post-war commissions that evaluated intelligence. And the general finding was that the intelligence community fell victim to a number of very familiar analytical pitfalls. Their work was sloppy, maybe it was rushed, maybe they didn't have enough time to do it right. In any case, the idea is intelligence screwed up. The second per perspective is the complete opposite. Now, intelligence was accurate, but policy bullies forced it to be inaccurate. That if left to its own devices, the intelligence community would have produced a useful and accurate assessment of Iraqi capabilities. I don't think either view is, is correct. Uh, in fact, what I view this case is as a total collapse in intelligence policy relations. Intelligence analysts began with plausible assumptions of Iraqi capabilities and Iraqi intentions. But these assumptions were incorrect. The problem was policy pressure then came down on them, which caused them to turn these little assumptions into worst case scenarios 
to make the most of little threads of possible interpretations of patchy and ambiguous data. Up until about the summer of 2002, intelligence on Iraq looked like this. Analysts believe that Saddam Hussein intended to rebuild a chemical and biological capability probably over time. Iraq might also have tried to reconstitute its nuclear program if international sanctions were lifted and if he had unfettered access to the kinds of things he would need to develop fissile, mil fissile material capabilities. But analysis up to the summer of 2002 were laden down with caveats and conditions. The intelligence community was remarkably candid in saying, we don't know that much. Information coming out of Iraq is really terrible. There's not much of it. We can't trust a lot of this. All of these disclaimers were attached for all of the right reasons. That changed after the summer of 2002 a time in which the tone and substance of intelligence uh, changed and presented a much more certain picture of the Iraqi threat in much more vivid and ominous language. And a lot of this had to do with pressure from the Bush administration, who indirectly and directly nudged intelligence officials to play up the worst case scenario. Why did the Bush administration care? Well, domestic politics changed in the summer of 2002. I think the Bush administration was surprised in July 2002 when Brent Scowcroft, a conservative former uh, NSA, wrote an op-ed in, of all places, the Wall Street Journal that said, don't attack Iraq. Right? This kind of cover from a prominent conservative in national security circles gave Senate Democrats the opportunity to start pushing back against the administration and demanding more answers on why we seem to be rushing to war. Now, faced with this sudden uh, burst of domestic opposition or, or, or maybe domestic skepticism, the Bush administration went into high uh, gear and enlisted intelligence to help it make the case. Incidentally, the same thing happened in Great Britain, uh, a, a case that I cover in detail in the book, and I'd be happy to talk about that more if anybody is interested in it. What was the result of this pressure? Well, as I said, that there was a dramatic change in the tone and substance of, of, of intelligence on Iraq. Most notably in the 2002 National Intelligence Estimate, which I think mattered a, a bit more than, than Paul does. Um, I, don't, I agree that most senators didn't read the thing, but they read the key judgments, and they got the gist of it. It wasn't hard to get the gist of it. The gist of it was that Iraq was, as the president said, a grave and gathering danger. I'll give you a couple of examples. The estimate concluded that Iraq possessed between one and 500 tons of chemical weapons agent, including mustard, sarin gas, and VX. No previous estimate had exceeded 100 tons. So this was, a, this was a sharp increase in the amount of chemical weapons that we thought Iraq had. Now, why did they increase that number? It turns out it had nothing to do with new information, nothing to do with new intelligence coming in. The decision to set the upper bound at 500 tons rather than 100 tons was based on the size of the Iraqi stockpile before the first Gulf War. We went back and we said, well, how much did they have in 1991? In terms of biological weapons, this was the first estimate that had definitively stated that Iraq possessed actual biological weapons. 
previous assessments had always laced their conclusions with caveats that we're not really sure and we're not really ready to make a firm judgment because the information is so patchy, unreliable, and ambiguous. Ambiguous. Not this time. In, instead, this time the NIE found, and I'll quote here, that Iraq had stockpiles of lethal and incapacitating biological warfare agents. And these included anthrax and possibly smallpox. Worse yet, the estimate concluded that Iraq probably had genetically modified pathogens and could deliver them through a combination of, quote, bombs, missiles, aerial sprayers, and covert operatives. This was scary stuff presented in scary language. On nuclear weapons, the NIE included a worrying discussion about the erosion of UN sanctions, concluding that international controls were not enough to prevent Iraq from a acquiring a nuclear capability sometime before 2010. So the estimates in the short term had become much more certain. All of the doubts and disagreements had gone away, and we were left with a real case for war. In the medium term, what happened? Well, UN inspectors went back. And this is a curious uh, episode. UN inspectors went back into the country beginning in December of 2002, and they worked very hard. In early 2003, UN and IEEE inspectors visited many hundreds of sites. They conducted no-notice inspections. They brought along very sophisticated technologies, things like ground-penetrating radar, to try to ferret out ev evidence that, that Iraq possessed these weapons. And it found bubkis. They kept looking. They kept looking hard. They weren't finding anything. Now, you would think that this new evidence would cause some sort of serious reassessment in the intelligence community. I find no evidence that there was any serious reassessment, despite the fact that there was a lot of evidence suddenly pointing in the other direction. But I don't think this is terribly surprising. The intelligence community had staked its reputation on the 2002 NIE, and it wasn't turning back. What have we learned from that experience? Well, what have I learned from this experience? What's the upshot of this case? Well, one, one thing is that I agree with Paul. If you want to um, reform intelligence, you have to take seriously the problems associated with intelligence policy relations. Even if you completely repair the intelligence community, and even if the intelligence community consistently delivers perfect pristine, accurate, comprehensive estimates, that will all be totally futile if it does not have uh, a willing consumer. Right? If intelligence policy relations are broken, there's no amount of reform that will help, no matter how good it is. Now, both of our books uh, sort of agree on this point, although we come to, to different conclusions about how to do this. Um, my own view is that if you want to, to fix the problem of politicization, then you have to remove intelligence from the process of politics. Most importantly, this means restoring the norm of secrecy to the intelligence process. Um, whenever you have the expectation that intelligence estimates on current issues will be in the public sphere, Policymakers have very strong incentives to try to manipulate those, in those estimates so that they say what they want them to say. Right. Restoring the norm of secrecy, the idea that intelligence should not be a public good, is important if you want to stop uh, further cases of politicization, as happened before the war in Iraq. Now, this is contrary to our democratic norms. 
This is, this is not a, a conclusion that I set out to find. This is not something that I was happy to write down on paper. Right? I was brought up in a good home, and we believed in government transparency and all the rest. But in this case, I can come to no other conclusion that in, unless we take secrecy seriously again, politicization will be inevitable. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Uh, now let me introduce our distinguished commentator, Mark Lowenthal. Uh, Dr. Mark M. Lowenthal is the president and CEO of the Intelligence and Security Academy, a national security education training and consulting company. From 2002 to 2005, he served as the assistant director of Central Intelligence for analysis and production, and also as the vice chairman for evaluation on the National Intelligence Council. Mark has written extensively on intelligence and national security issues, including five books and over 90 articles or studies. His most recent book, Intelligence from Secrets to Policy, now in its fourth edition, has become the standard college and graduate school textbook on the subject. He received his BA from Brooklyn College and his PhD in history from Harvard. In 2005, Dr. Lowenthal was awarded the National Intelligence Distinguished Service Medal, the intelligence community's highest award. In, 1990, in 1988, Mark was the grand champion on the television quiz show, Jeopardy. Mark Lowenthal. So I'll take NIEs for $500 now. <laughs> thanks, Chris. Um, and thanks for inviting me to do this. Um, a little truth in advertising here. Paul and I worked together on the Nick for the three years that uh, Chris mentioned. And I, I gave a blurb to his book. Um, Josh is sort of my linear descendant at Columbia University, where he's inherited the course that I had for many years. So there are connections there. And finally, this one's important. I was trained as a historian, not a political scientist. So that colors a lot of what I'm going to say here. Um, we have two very different books here, uh, books on the same subject, very different points of view at the end of the day, um, both writing about the use of intelligence and the politicization of intelligence. And now, most intelligence officers believe that politicization, A, is a cardinal sin, on that we have agreement, and B, that it doesn't happen all that often. Clearly, Paul and Josh are arguing, yes, it does. So let me look at uh, Paul's book first. Um, I think, first of all, we have to say something about the tone of the book. It is a creed de corps. I mean, this is a very, anyone who knows Paul, um, I always think Paul is a very cerebral, contained individual. This is a very passionate book. Not that he doesn't have passions, but the book, it's a very passionate book. And it, it, there's a lot of heartfelt emotion in the book. Um, Paul argues, as he did here today, that intelligence has been a lot less influential in helping make policy decisions than most people believe. Now, I think that depends on how you define it. If you mean a frequently decisive input to, in, to policy deliberations, then Paul is likely right. Um, another definition is possible. Dick Kerr, who is a former deputy DCI, has written a very good chapter on intelligence analysis in, in a book by um, Roger George and Jim Bruce and other colleagues of ours from the NIC. And what Dick writes about is that um, the main goal that intelligence played over 50 years that he was surveying is helping policymakers bound their uncertainty so they can make the decisions they had to make with a greater sense of assuredness. So if that's your definition, then intelligence probably was more decisive, but not at, on the point that Paul is talking about, not the, this is it, I've got the intel, let's do X. Um, intelligence, uh, Paul argues, abets politicization because policymakers often, intelligence officers, often take the path of least resistance. This is one of the things that comes up 
in the SS9 controversy that Josh writes about with, with Dick Helms. And I think that's what Dick Helms did do. But you have to remember always, when reading either book or when thinking about intelligence, that this is not a relationship of equals. The policymakers own the government. It's their government. We are a service. We show up in the car, in the briefing, and we serve whoever runs the government. And so given the inequality of the relationship, there's inevitably going to be some distortion. Um, Paul argues that intelligence reform has been largely irrelevant and even harmful, especially the 9-11 Commission. All I can say is, yay, verily. One cannot say enough about the damage done to U.S. national security by that commission, which I think is, despite John Updeck's encomium, is one of the most overrated documents in American history. It reads a lot better than it is. Um, <laughs> it just, it, it's, it's a plea to go back to September 10th, and as the uh, British novel, The Go-Between Begins, the past is a foreign country, and we're not going back there anymore. And I had this interesting interlude that I'll share with you. I was at a, another session like this, and there was a young woman there who um, apparently is the Washington rep of the 9-11 families, which is an interesting job. And she was berating uh, John Brennan, who's the president's national uh, counterterrorism advisor. Why haven't you adopted all of the 9-11 recommendations? And I said to her afterwards, I said, do you really think that that's important? She said, yes, absolutely. I said, I hate to break this to you, but there's nothing we could have done to stop that attack that morning, given what we knew. She said, I can't believe that. I have to believe that my government could have stopped it. So if that's your working premise, then everything else follows. It's not mine. Paul wants a uh, greater se political separation between the two groups. I'm not sure that it's feasible. Even if we were physically separate, which I don't think is a key issue either, as Jack said, intelligence officers are always going to know the preferences of the policymakers. We all knew we were going to war in October 02. We know this was not a separate, even though there had never been a formal decision. We all knew this, and there's no way that you can separate intelligence officers so they won't know the preferences of their policy customers. Um, let me say in conclusion on Paul's book, not all intelligence officers are going to agree with the book, but I think it's a very important book and it's one that really has to be taken seriously. Let me turn to, to Josh's book. Um, I, I found it more problematic because I was trained as a historian. And as Josh says, he's looking for a model that will help explain why politicization occurs. I'm not sure that a model is needed. Josh explained why he thinks we, we need to have one, so there's a difference there. Um, Josh decries the antagonistic relationship between intelligence and policy. I'm not sure that's a bad thing. I think I want there to be a certain edge to the relationship. I don't want intelligence officers working hand in glove with policymakers all the time. Which, as bad as things are now, they could always get worse. And I think that a, a much more simpatico relationship could lead to much more politicization rather than much less. I think Josh's model is somewhat elitist, taking place largely within the Beltway. My experience of intelligence is that most Americans really don't care. Uh, Josh actually concedes this point in his case study on Team B, which was the uh, dueling estimates on Soviet strategic forces back in 75-76. Um, and he says, you know, most Americans didn't care about arms control. Most Americans don't care about intelligence. They just want to know that they can be safe at night, and they take it for granted that somebody is working on that. And to use the, um, the Team B case, I, I'm a little unconvinced that Ford agreeing to Team B, and I'm not sure the decision went to President Ford. I could be wrong about that. I'm not sure that Ford acquiescing to a Team B exercise would have had any effect 
on the Republican delegates trying to unseat him by siding with Ronald Reagan. I just can't see on the floor of the convention saying, gosh, that Team B thing is great. I'm changing sides. I just, I just don't see it. On the Iraq NIE, um, we just have a lot of differences. Um, the experience that Josh describes is not the experience that I went through. It's not the experience that I think Paul went through. Um, the, um, the KJs, the key judgments, were not read either. They were not separable. They were one document. Um, the IAEA, I have to tell you, I don't trust the IAEA. The IAEA's job is to show that nuclear energy is safe and that the non-proliferation treaty works. And as long as they have that ingoing premise, they're, they're sort of like um, Sergeant Schultz and Hogan's heroes. I see nothing. So I personally would have had a lot of trouble, and I saw the IAEA reports. And I, I actually, I think the best summation of that entire experience for us <coughs> was something that was said by Bob Walpole, who was one of the principal drafters, one of our colleagues on, on the NIC. And um, he walked past my office one night as we were drafting this. It was around 7 o'clock. And I said, hey, come here. How's it going? And he said, it's going. It's all right. I said, what's the matter? He said, look, I don't think this is a good reason to go to war. He said, I think he's got WMD. I don't have any doubts about that. But I wouldn't go to war over it. And I thought that was an interesting, intellectually honest statement by Bob. The intelligence was taking him in one direction. Personally, he would have gone in another. Um, finally, uh, Josh says repeatedly, and he said it here again today, that um, not enough has been written about the intelligence policymaker relationship. Well, there's 36 years of my work out the window. Uh, we, we, we do need to talk about this. I, I, I read that to my wife, and she looked at me and said, hmm. Um, I totally agree with Josh on ending the publication of, of NIEs in redacted form, in any form. Horrible idea. Um, finally, let, let me conclude uh, on Josh's book. In, in, in Scottish law, as opposed to English law, juries can come up with three findings. There's guilty, there's not guilty, and there's not, and there's, and there's not proven. I think in Josh's case, I'm in the not proven category, but I recommend the book to you and let you work that out on your own. And finally, let me close with one summation anecdote here. Um, some of you may remember the British humor magazine Punch, which unfortunately went out of publication in the late 70s or 1980s. Um, in the 19th century, going back 100 years more, um, the editor of Punch was walking down the, the street in London, and one of his readers accosted him and said, Punch isn't as funny as it used to be. And he said it never was. Well, that's, that's sort of how I feel about US intelligence. Intelligence isn't as bad as it used to be, and it never was. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Um, do either of you wish to respond to anything that, that Mark raised? Uh, uh, I heard, I overheard Josh uh, saying there are exceptions. He did, did, he did stress that, or, or anything else? Just go ahead, go ahead, Josh. Yeah, very briefly, um, there are exceptions. Good of you to say so. Mark's work is one of them. Um, just a couple of quick comments on, on, on one thing. I think we're actually in agreement on this idea of there being um, some necessary friction in the relationship. And in the book, I actually say that the, I, I spend some time thinking about what this thing would look like in the ideal. And, and the words or the phrase I use is healthy tension. There should always be tension. Right? In the ideal, the intelligence agencies would be able to deliver bad news, and policymakers would be able to push back without being accused of improper meddling. Now, maintaining this level of tension is really, really hard, but it's necessary. I completely agree that if you have a, a, a situation of, of 
excessive harmony, you're setting the stage for strategic tunnel vision. You're going to make very stupid mistakes. There needs to be tension in, in this relationship. Um, on, on the issue of, of whether or not Americans care about intelligence, I actually think they do. Um, in, in they do when intelligence is packaged as part of a policy public relations um, effort. Uh, and I've gone back and I, I look at cases from the Vietnam War, I look at a couple of cases from, from the Soviet estimate in the 1960s and 1970s, and I look at the US and British case. And one thing that you find routinely is that public support for presidential initiatives goes up after the release of intelligence that helps it make the case. I, I think this is, this is fairly persuasive evidence that yeah, people do care, even if they're not inside the Beltway. Um, and by the way, I'm not inside the Beltway, and I never have been. No, uh, you're in the bus wash corridor, though. So it's, it's, it's I, no, no, no. I'm in I'm in Rhode Island. <laughs> it's part of the corridor. <laughs> uh, finally, on this issue, one thing, and we should talk about this more on on the IAEA. Um, Everybody has their own biases about international organizations. You can't trust the IAEA or the UN weapons inspectors are, are, are gullible or whatever. But the fact remains that the IAEA documented literally hundreds of inspections. And the fact that it was finding nothing should be a cause for reassessment. You have to, to, to stop and not let your institutional biases get in the way of what looks like real evidence. So I'll just leave it at that. Paul? You want to yeah, just, uh Two things. Uh, one, on uh, one of Mark's last points about uh, greater political separation is not going to keep intelligence officers from knowing what the policymakers want to do. Well, of course it won't. Um, they're going to know anyway. The issue is not that they won't know, but rather, in the end, uh, who, who will they consider to be their boss? And um, if the, the boss is solely and directly the White House, that does I suggest make a difference than if you had some other arrangement in the book. I make some suggestions about uh, perhaps making the intelligence community more like the Fed, you know, having some kind of semi-independent status. I hasten to admit there are all kinds of uh, practical objections that could be raised, but the issue is not whether they know or not know. The issue is who's ultimately the boss. And then I, the other thing I want to comment on is this, uh, uh, from Josh's remarks, is the influence of the ill-starred NIE you know, details about how many metric tons of CW or whatever had absolutely no effect whatever on the votes that those congressmen cast, you know, let alone the uh, larger uh, public view. You know, the missing ingredient here that none of us talked about was the politics that surrounded this issue, especially as far as congressional action was concerned in the autumn of 2002. And basically the Bush administration had set a war train rushing down the track and was daring anyone to get in the way. And the Republicans got on board through party loyalty, at least as much as anything, and Democrats who got on board did so because they just wanted to get the issue out of the way and get the vote out of the way as soon as possible before uh, the, the elections uh, in 2002. They didn't even hold any hearings um, on, on the resolutions, even worse than the Gulf of Tonkin resolution in that regard in, in uh, 1964. Um, one of those uh, half dozen senators who actually bothered to crack open the NIE was Bob Graham, who was the, uh, then the chairman of the Senate Intelligence <coughs> Committee, and he later wrote, geez, this, this doesn't sound anything like the case for war that the administration is making. It's full of doubts and dissents. And Graham, despite his presidential ambitions, voted against the war resolution. 